Welcome to the ninth episode of the Cornell Policy Review Podcast. My name is Agosa Asimoda, and I am the Senior Content Editor at The Review. This podcast will explore a variety of policy issues through interviews with figures from around the world. In this episode, Joe Vervalen, the Senior PR Editor of the Cornell Policy Review, sits down with Dr. Elizabeth Peters, a labor economist, demographer, and senior fellow at the Urban Institute Center on Labor, Human Services, and Population. Joe and Dr. Peters discuss the impact of social policy on the structure of the family in the United States and the role that policymakers play in the development of the family unit. We hope you enjoy. Thank you again for speaking to us today. We really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate the invitation. It was fun to meet with you all. All right, thank you. So, just starting off, what prompted you to choose your particular area of focus as the area you wanted to focus your research on? Well, when I finished my undergrad degree, I got a job working in ASPE at HHS as the Assistant Secretary for Planning and Evaluation, and it's a research arm that advises the Secretary. And at that time, a long time ago, when it was still HEW, ASPE had three components. It had a group that was working on Social Security, and that's where I got the job, a group that was working on welfare reform, and a group that was working on health reform. Sounds kind of familiar. These things are still in the news, I think, and top policy priorities. But this was an office with a lot of PhDs, and they were they were making changes, making recommendations, and really able to potentially make a policy difference. And I was really thrilled to be there, and I said, I need to go and get a PhD so I can go back and do the same thing. So I really got into domestic policy at that point. And as I said, I was working on the Social Security side, and so I thought, well, maybe I want to work in the aging population. And then when I got to graduate school, I worked as a research assistant for someone and he said why do you want to work on aging they're already at the end of their life there's not much you can do to affect their whole life trajectory you should be working on kids he worked on kids as well that got me to thinking about kids and families and I took a I took several classes with Gary Becker who was really the father of family economics and I was really interested in the family as an institution and the role that it plays in supporting other family members as acting as a safety net but also investing in the next generation and how that role interfaced with policy so that's kind of how I got to where I am now from some of those early experiences. And in your experiences looking at the family, how has it changed since you first started studying it back at the University of Chicago? When I was in grad school, I got out in the 80s, so I'm dating myself. A lot of the interest was in divorce, because divorce rates had been rising hugely uh, through the 60s and 70s. So there was just a lot of interest in the economic consequences of divorce, how laws affected the likelihood of divorce and all of that. So I started working in that area. But since then, non-marital childbearing has really taken off. And in particular, childbearing within the context of a cohabiting relationship, that's an even more recent 
recent phenomenon. And that really affects how we think about family structure. If you think of non-marital childbearing where the dad's never been there, that's very different than non-marital childbearing where the dad has lived there for six months, a year, a couple of years. We know that cohabiting relationships are less stable, but still the dad has really been there for a period of time. So those are real changes in family structures that affect policy because a lot of what policy is interested in is how to support these kids when they're not living in a stable two-parent household and how to encourage both parents to be involved in supporting the child both economically and uh, and emotionally, socio-emotionally as well. So I think those family structure changes are really important. The other thing that's happening is that the population is aging and as the population ages you end up with more frail People who need help, often family members are the providers of that help. Primarily, it's daughters, it's also spouses. With the family changes that have happened, maybe you don't have a spouse, you're less likely to have a spouse now than you did before because families, you know, because families are much more unstable. Or you maybe didn't live with your daughter for a lot of her childhood. So do you have those supports when you're old? So I think that the instability in family structure not only affects outcomes for kids and policies related to the well-being of children, but then also affects the caregiving, the intergenerational caregiving that has historically been a big part of a family's role and that's getting increasingly important as the size of the elderly population is getting even larger. You mentioned earlier that you were at the assistant office of... ASPE, Assistant Secretary for Planning Planning. and Evaluation. Yes, Yes. and this was back when it was the Department of Health Education and Welfare before they got split off from each other. Right. So in your time there, there was a lot of interest in welfare reform and there was a lot of interest in this idea that it was having an impact on the family. How do you view public policy as helping shape the family both in the U.S. and abroad? The debate, and Charles Murray was a proponent of this idea, was when we have welfare that's available to single mothers, then that just encourages family breakup. I think that the consensus in the research is that if there's any effect, it's tiny, pretty negligible. The studies are pretty inconsistent in terms of finding either a positive or a, a negative effect. Mostly they're kind of all over the map, and the most carefully done ones show either zero effect or maybe, maybe a tiny effect encouraging a breakup of the family. So I think the consensus is welfare is not the culprit explaining the rise in single parent families. And a few years ago, David Elwood published a paper, maybe it's more like 10 or 15 years ago. He actually came here to Cornell and gave that paper and I thought it was a fascinating paper. And one of the things he said in the in, in the beginning of this paper was that it's almost been the holy grail of social scientists to explain the rise of single parent families. And what they've managed to do is to find that of all the theories, none of those theories are really explaining the rise of the single parent family. Yet, there has been a rise of single parent families. So it's been a real frustration to to understand why that has happened. And if we don't understand why it's happened, certainly some of these kinds of policies that we're talking about are probably not the main culprit. But it's still, it's something out there. 
That actually brings me to something that I personally have been curious about for quite a while, which is when discussing family policy, I think just because of the social norms in society, there tends to be a lot of focus on women and on children, but obviously there's also a role that men play in the family, and I was wondering in your experiences, how have you found that men, and in particular single fathers or divorced men, have played into the changing role of the family over the past couple of decades? I actually started my career with an interest in women, and my dissertation in some ways really addressed economic consequences of divorce for women. But as I got more into this field and realized that the policies at divorce at that time were really focusing on children and child support policy, not so much on conditions for divorce. And so I started moving my work to really focus on children. Then I realized that if you're going to deal with child support, you need to understand the men. You can't understand child support in isolation from the people who are the primary ones who actually pay child support. So a lot of my career has actually been looking at fathers, at their involvement with children, and how and the heterogeneity, actually, in their involvement with children. Some are very involved, some are not. The barriers that keep fathers from being involved and the kinds of policies that may encourage involvement. So I've really dealt with men a lot. I've also looked at men providing childcare. And there's been a bit of an increase over time in fathers being identified as the primary child care provider when the mother is working. So there's a lot of work out there kind of beginning to look at men. You mentioned the dads who are single parent dads. That's a minority of cases, although it's been growing. I don't know of a lot of research that actually looks at the consequences of that small group, but it's definitely increasing. Another thing that's been increasing is the growth in joint custody, and not just joint legal custody, but also joint physical custody. And so there are, you know, there are dads wanting to be involved. I think that a lot of the focus on men, the context of a family, and especially with men who are fathering children outside of marriage and who are interacting with kids who are primarily living with the mom is the issues of co-parenting. So a lot of these young parents haven't learned some of the basics of child development and so there's these programs, home visiting programs and others that are, are trying to help provide parents with the resources to, to know what are good parenting practices. But more and more there's a realization that co-parenting is critical and it's critical when the two parents are living together but it's even potentially even more critical when the parents are not living together because there's likely to, to be more potential conflicts that need to be negotiated. So some of these programs, the home visiting I mentioned, and a lot of the fatherhood programs, so they've developed these fatherhood programs to help a lot of these primarily those who are not like living with their kids. And those fatherhood programs have three components. One is the parenting component, understanding child development, what can you do to, to help support your child's development. And I actually did some interviewing of fathers who were being served by these home visiting programs. And one dad said to me, you know, I didn't know until you taught me that cursing at my child was not a good thing. Now, some people will go, oh, isn't that obvious? But in fact, a lot of people grow up in a home where 
cursing at your child, you know, yelling at your child is the way to go and you never experience anything different. So maybe some of us in middle class, upper middle class houses laugh a little bit that he didn't know. He really didn't. And he took it to heart. He said, I really learned that I need to not do that. And then there's co-parenting, as I said, that they teach how to negotiate with your partner because a lot of problems with kids when the parents don't get along is the stress from this conflict. In fact, a lot of the research on divorce, when they said, well, divorce is bad for kids, right? So you would keep the parents together. But then there's a school of thought that says, yeah, but if the parents are constantly fighting, it's actually not good for the kids. Those are parents that maybe should split up because staying together is not beneficial for the kid. So there are some scholars who say, well, is it a good enough marriage that you want to stay together till your kid grows up or whatever? Or under how bad is too bad to stick it out for the kid? And then now to get to the third component of fathering programs, those are really job skills. A lot of the these poor dads don't have very good job prospects. They don't have high education, high skills. And the social norm, to go back to your, your idea of social norms, is that the dad is the breadwinner. And these guys are taught that. And it takes away their sense of power, their sense of dignity, when they're not able to fill, fulfill that role. And, and a lot of scholars will say that's what drives dads away from their kids. They don't think that they have the right to be involved with their kids unless they can be a breadwinner. And so one of the ways to help dads get involved with their kids is to teach them the skills and, and help them find a job so that they can get their self-respect and help play a breadwinner role. So that is the third leg of these fathering programs is helping the dad with the breadwinner role. So it's not just child development, that's kind of the mother template, you know, understanding the kids, but that's important for dads too. Cooperation thing, but then also this breadwinner role. You, you talked a lot about quite a few different areas of family policy there. And just going more broadly, based on the amount of rhetoric and politics out there about the family, what would you say is the biggest misconception floating around out there about the American family today? Hard for me to figure out a misconception because I know it so well, so I think everybody must know it. So I don't know if it's a misconception that family is so diverse and so unstable, but, but I do think that, that, that people probably act still as if the nuclear family is the dominant family form, and it really is not. 40% of children, 40% of children are born outside of marriage. That's not a majority, but it's pretty close. And then a lot of kids experience divorce as well. So I would say the majority of kids will spend at least some of their, their life outside of a two-parent family. I don't know what the general perception is, but I'm guessing that, that people would generally be surprised by that number. And in a similar vein, how will policymakers and policy analysts and researchers, how do you view them reacting to these changing structures in the family over the next couple of years, this increasing amount of what people would consider as non-traditional family structures? So there's always been a tension in policy between those who think that the nuclear family is the way that the family should be and has always been until now and would like to structure policy 
as if that is the case. And those who see the reality of families and want to structure policies differently. Going back to welfare reform in the 90s, there was explicit language in the Welfare Reform Act privileging and saying that policy should promote marriage. And similar to the whole divorce debate about should you get divorced if you've got so much conflict that it's not good for the kid, people would push back on this and say, well, you can't say that any marriage is better than no marriage. You just don't, you don't want these shotgun marriages, so, so, so to speak, if a pregnancy outside of marriage occurs, should they get married? Well, I mean, that might not be best for the kid. You don't want them to just marry. I mean, maybe the dad is a drug addict or drug dealer or something, you know. That's not a situation which would make for a successful marriage. So then the language started to change. And it wasn't just promoting marriage. It was promoting healthy marriage. And that meant the kind of marriage that would be able to function well to support children. And then later on in the 2000s, and I don't know whether it happened under Bush or it waited until Obama, but the, this transition started to happen where it was not just healthy marriage, but also healthy relationships. So there was really an acknowledgement that didn't exclusively privilege marriage, that there are some relationships that are not marriage, officially married, that are still really good for kids. And so we wanna promote healthy parental relationships. There's always been this debate, at least since I've been around paying attention to it. And I think it still exists. I gave you the example earlier when we talked about President Trump's comment about his proposed immigration bill that got rid of a lot of the family criteria that would make you eligible for legal migration. And he basically said, well, we don't... We don't want just anybody coming, grandparents or, you know, cousins or whatever. We just want to have that category of a family preference um, be kids and spouses because that will support the nuclear family. So these kinds of debates are still happening and still occur. They're still affecting the way policymakers think about policy. So you were involved with the Cornell Population Center, and I was wondering if you could tell us about your experiences working there and why you view it as valuable to the work of policy analysis. I was the first director of the, of, I guess it was originally called the Cornell Population Program and now the Cornell Population Center. Overall, I think that the study of demography and population has very critical policy components. Components of demography are fertility, mortality, marriage, and migration. And there's major policies relating to all four of those. I mean, in the U.S., we think of you know, policies for preventing teen, teen fertility, and for marriage and family formation, we've talked about those already. Migration, we just mentioned the, the, some of the migration policies in terms of what, what gives you eligibility to migrate to the U.S. And mortality, that's all about investing in health, to move the needle at all on how long you live. So I think there are major policy programs that deal with all aspects of demography. So I think the connection between demography or study of population and policy is is very central. So I mean, Cornell's got a really good group of scholars that works both in the domestic area and the international area on demography in all areas, in migration, in family studies, in health policy, and so forth. So I think we've got a huge faculty um, doing really important work. And I can say we, because I'm actually a professor emerita, and I'm very proud 
of, of that fact. So even though I'm no longer uh, physically here at Cornell, I really consider Cornell a home. After spending a lot of your time focusing on domestic policy in the United States, what prompted you to move to studying women's economic empowerment in low-income countries? Well, this opportunity came up, and I was asked by the people who found out about this request for proposal, and said that we're looking for a labor economist with an interest in women. And I raised my hand and I said, oh, that's me, that's me. But I, I did have that interest because when I was teaching economic demography, I would very often use examples from international research. And even though the contexts are different, some of the theories I was talking about played out very similarly. I mean, one example of this that I found in this new project is the work on child care. So child care in, in developing countries, in, in low-income countries, is a critical support that women need to go into the workforce. So they're increasing the labor force participation in low-income countries just the way we were doing that in the U.S. in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And child care is, is a critical support for that. And when I started listening to the scholars who were working on that and listening to the um, the main policy proposals, the conversations were so similar. There was this issue of the tension between wanting to have low-cost child care so that women could go to work, but making sure that child care was of a high enough quality that kids weren't harmed. And I said, I've heard that somewhere before. That's exactly the same conversation that we have in the U.S. So I find the, the connections between the two, the similarities between the U.S. context and an international context to be surprisingly great. Again, not all the contexts are similar. I totally understand that. There's different kinds of social norms and constraints and whatever, different countries. But the fact that I find that as many similarities as I did makes this really interesting to study and understand both the contrasts as well as the similarities. Just to wrap up, I'm sure after listening to this podcast, plenty of people will be interested in learning more about family policy and demography and your work specifically. So where can people go to find out about your work and about family policy in general? There's a lot of resources. Look at my page at the Urban Institute and that will have connections to my CV for some of the papers and we'll also have connections to some of the policy work that I've done at Urban that's maybe a little more accessible than an academic paper. So being at Urban, I've done some, some article work, some academic paper works, but an awful lot of more policy briefs that are more digestible for those who don't have an expertise already in this area. There's also a lot of other places. There's a lot of really good people working on the family at Wisconsin and the Institute for Research on Poverty. There's the Center for Marriage and Families at Bowling Green. Some of the work on fragile families, it's a fabulous study. You'll see a lot of that work coming out at Princeton with Sarah McClanahan being the head scholar of that. And here at Cornell, there's plenty of people who are, are working in this area. You can look at their work. All right. Well, thank you very much for interviewing with us today, Dr. Peters. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed it. All right.